Thank you so much, Claire. I'm excited about all that Christmas stuff that is going on. How many of you walked in and you saw the Christmas little decoration that Vex already put up? I think um, that's to kind of remind us about all the stuff that's going on, but I think that Vex just wanted an excuse to put up Christmas decoration. She was kind of reminding me, oh, it's getting close. We've got to get our Christmas tree out. How many of you got Christmas stuff already started in your house? Praise the Lord. You're all sane people. I am making sure that my wife is, and uh, it is great. How many of you have got New Year resolutions started? Good, because the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about three mindsets that we need to bring into 2024, uh, both as a church, uh, but individually as well. And uh, I, I really felt this series uh, for us to get into because, uh, you know, I, I felt like this year has kind of rushed by a little bit. Anyone felt that way? I don't know what it is. I think possibly it's because this is the first year where, where it feels like things are kind of getting back to normal. And I don't know about you, but I probably uh, uh, entered into this year going, I need to make up a little bit for lost time. I need to make up for lost time I've been running, and then it hits like October, and, and it's like, uh, I, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit tired. I'm feeling a little bit like, you know, I've been running hard. And I think that's been great. God's opened many opportunities, and for us as a church, look at this place. You know, God's opened opportunities for us to do the gift mart. You know, the gift mart has been an idea that, uh, that was given to us about, uh, I think about four years ago, three years ago, and we have just so loved the idea, but we've not been able to do it. And then God's opened up this thing, and, and at first we were like, okay, we've got a building, we've got to do gift mart. And then it was like, this is going to be a lot of work. And it's like, yeah, but it's going to be great work, and it's super exciting. I've been talking to lots of uh, different uh, chaplains and, and, and community services in our area, and they are also stoked about it. We've got Mission Australia coming. We have got uh, um, the Aboriginal Family Legal Services coming. We have got uh, a financial counselor coming, and, and some of the chaplains, they want to pop in. They just want to see what things are going, uh, how things are going. And I just believe that next year is going to be even bigger because I know that there's need in our community and we just want to connect with people. We just want to love people. Uh, but in the midst of all of that, I think that it can get a little bit overwhelming. It, it can feel like it's lights out sometimes. <laughs> it can feel like things are a little bit over the top. No more special effects, please. <laughs> and, um, and so we want to dive into three mindsets for 2024. And so come this week, come the next couple of weeks, set yourself up for a new year where it's not about uh, um, being overwhelmed, but it's actually about finding a way to be in the center of God's will for your life. That's what this series is all about. I believe that as we find ourselves in the center of God's will, we will find life and life abundantly, life and life overflowing, and I, I, that's what I believe God wants for us. So uh, turn with me to Ecclesiastes 3 verses 1 to 8. Many people know this passage, and it says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. 
and you can see a, a few of them up there. And, and we all kind of know this passage. Well, I saw, uh, I think a couple of months ago, someone made a meme of this, and it says that Pentecostals read this passage this way. If you can go to the next slide. And um, Pentecostals kind of wipe out the half of it that isn't so nice. And so instead of reading Ecclesiastes 3, 1, 8, the way it's meant to be, we read that for everything there's a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to plan, a time to heal, a time to build up, a time to laugh, a time to dance, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, a time to seek, a time to keep, a time to sow, a time to speak, a time to love, and a time for peace. Isn't that kind of sometimes what we think Christianity is for? To help us get rid of the negative stuff, the stuff that isn't so nice. But the Bible tells us that not only is there time to be born, but there is a time to die. Not only is there time to plant, but there is a time to pluck up what has been planted. Not only is there time to heal, but sometimes there is a time to kill. I don't mean people. But maybe there are things in our lives that need to go. And we need to observe why it is that sometimes we like the Bible on the right but not on the left. Why we like the things that work for us but the things that don't seem so nice, we kind of push aside. And I put before you, I put to you that maybe a part of the reason is that we have a culture where, there, where, where progress a culture where achievement, a culture where production is often what we measure our identity by. In fact, there are some people that call it the cult of production, the cult of progress, the cult of looking like I'm moving forward rather than looking like I am retreating. In fact, for a season of life in churches, we didn't go on retreats anymore. We went on staff advances. We would go down to Mandra so that it's all nice and serene and we would be advancing. We won't retreat. No, there's no such thing as retreat in the kingdom because God's always victorious and so I'm always moving forward. That is part of the cult of progress that we can often find ourselves in because we so measure our identity by what we produce and that is actually something. Uh, um, I studied this uh, in my sociology class years ago um, that humanity have always had a sense of achievement from producing things with our hands, when we build things. And I feel like that's actually something that is popping back up. If you go on things like TikTok, and I'm not on TikTok, I'm on Instagram, so I see uh, the TikTok post three months after it goes viral. Um, and, and, and we see all these posts like uh, people doing wood carvings, they're beautiful, or they make these wonderful tables. And there are hundreds of thousands of people watching people do artisan stuff. But the funny thing for me this week is that I saw someone put up a video with hundreds of thousands of views of making pasta. And a whole bunch of flour, had a bunch of eggs, stirred up the eggs, and it was all really slow so that you can see the whole pro process. And people were like, why do we do that? Why are we fascinated with that? I think it's because we all wish that we could produce things of beauty and things of value, things that other people like, and, uh, things that are seen as, as, as 
bigger than what others can do. We like to think of ourselves as experts, and we like to think of ourselves as having moved forward. And we get to that place where our identity becomes trapped in what we do rather than who we are. And to some extent, and this is not meant to be a huge commentary on that, I think our society is desperately seeking for identity and is desperately seeking for a sense of who I am. And so some of the things that we have done as a society is to find common ground with other people that look like they're doing the right things and doing great things. And I do pray that many people are in the right place with that. But I point out uh, to movements like Black Lives Matter where hundreds of thousands of people all jumped on that boat for a little while. Why? Because it made people feel like I belong to something. I hope that many people had the right intentions, but underlying all of that, psychologically speaking, we are looking for a crowd of people to give us a sense of who we are. And that is how humanity has always been. I'm reading up at the moment about ancient, the ancient Near East and their culture. Do you know that back then, thousands and thousands of years ago, people did not think of themselves as internal beings? They did not have a concept of who I am internally. They had a concept of who I am in community. They had a sense of who I am based on how I am contributing to society, and in particular, how I'm contributing to the order of society. So if I am not actually contributing to the order of society, I am now in disorder, and that is a punishment that the person will receive for contributing to disorder rather than order. That's how the near, uh, ancient Near East people thought about who they are. But who are we, Christians? I don't know we are meant to be thinking ourselves as, uh, as the pawns of society, if you will. Neither are we meant to be thinking of ourselves as who we, what we produce. Because how many of you over the last few years have experienced that the things that you try to do haven't exactly worked? How many of you are business people that are meant to be flying all over the world and suddenly you found yourself in a place where you're not allowed to even fly to Adelaide? We're not really in control all the time of our production. And so what happens when external forces mean that we don't get to produce? And I've spoken to a lot of mums, we've got a lot of bubs in our church, and suddenly a bub comes along and they're suddenly feeling like they're unproductive. How many moms have ever felt that before? I've got a baby and I'm unproductive because this life consumes every single waking moment of my life. Is that a bad thing? Is that how we are meant to see ourselves? I want to show you a better way. The first mindset that we need to think about when we approach 2024 is that we need to think about who we are becoming rather than what we are producing. And I want to show this to you in 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to jump ahead to verses 12 to 15 because there's something really interesting here. Now, 2 Peter is the letter that Peter wrote um, just before he died. This is the last thing, the last record of the things that Peter said. This is the last thing that he wanted um, the people, the church to have before he moved on in his life. And in verse 12, he says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So what is Peter saying here? 
Peter is saying here, there are these qualities, and we're going to look at them in just a moment, but there are these qualities that I know that you have already been established in them, probably because uh, Peter had some kind of a sense and reports of how the church was doing, and says, you know these qualities. Uh, we, we taught them to you. You have been established in them, and I want to remind you about it because they're so important. And you know what? I'm about to die, and so that's why I want to remind you about it again. But you know what? It's so important that I'm going to make sure that after I die, there's going to be some way that you can be reminded about these qualities. Do you capture in these three verses how important these qualities are? This is Peter saying, these are the things you cannot forget. And I bet you, when we look at these qualities, you're kind of going like, oh, is that it? In a moment. But right now, have I piqued your interest a little bit? The dying apostle Peter, the man who is kind of seen as the father of the church worldwide, he said, you know this, I'm going to remind you about it. I'm about to die, I'm going to remind you about it. When I die, I'm going to remind you about it. You need to know these. Are you ready to learn what Peter said? We're going to look at verses 3 to 11, and there are two sections to this um, passage. And the first is describing what God has done, and then the second are the qualities that Peter talks about. So let's look into it. This is what it says. His divine power, being God, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let's pause there for a second. This is an extremely important passage. I remember when I was going through a phase of my life where I wasn't really sure about following the call of God. I wasn't really sure whether I had what it took. I wasn't really sure whether things were aligning for me to be able to be the person that I thought I needed to be in order for God to trust. In fact, I was at a place where I was going and questioning whether God had actually called me to, uh, to, to work in the church and called me to give my life for this work because I was feeling like a little bit of a failure. There were things in my life that weren't quite aligning with how I thought things would be. And in particular, I was thinking about my station in life. I wasn't yet a leader. I wasn't yet able to do the things that God had placed on my heart. No door had opened. No opportunity had arisen. And I was in this place where I was questioning it. And I came to this passage and I read the first line. And it says that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I want you to pause there and think about whether you believe this statement or not. Do you believe that God has given you every single thing you need for life and godliness? How many of us get into places and positions in our life where we don't think that we have what it takes? We don't have the resources that we need. We don't have the, 
the, the, the emotional fortitude, the, the mental fortitude, the, the physical capa- uh, capabilities to do the things that God has called us to. How many of us are even looking at the next few days of your life and you're going, I don't even know how I'm supposed to get through those. But on our screens this morning, in your Bibles that you have with you, Peter says, as an opening statement, if you believe that God is God, if you believe that He is the creator of the heavens and the earth, if you believe that He has divine power, God's desire with His divine power, and not just desire, but His design, and what He has done is that He has given you everything. Come on, church, we need to get excited about this. God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Everything. Everything. When you are in a place of struggle, remember that He has given you everything. When I was in that place where I wasn't sure whether God was really positioning me, and I read this, I went, why am I thinking that I know better than God? Why do I think that I am better at discerning and determining how the course of my life is supposed to be? God has given me everything that I need. As you approach 2024, are you going to approach the next year thinking that you don't have what you need, or are you going to believe and have faith in the Word of God that says you have everything that you need? Because when we believe that we have everything that we need, it changes everything. You know, when we were about to put an offer in for this building, I was worried. I was thinking, man, if this falls through, I'm going to be so disappointed. I don't know if I could take this disappointment. Honestly, that was where I was, where I was at. And I spoke to, to, to my senior pastor, the, the pastor uh, who, who has um, been a, a spiritual uh, father to me for many years, and I said, Pastor Joel, I, I don't know how to do this. Like, should I be planning if this fails, or should I be going all in? Because I'm scared about going all in. I really am scared of going all in with you, God, uh, with this building, like all, all the plans, all the things, like this is the first time I kind of feel like if this doesn't work out, I don't know what we are supposed to do as a church. And he's like, isn't that what faith is supposed to be? That you have the faith that God is going to open the door, but you also have the faith that if the door stays shut, he knows what he needs to do. You don't know what's going to happen in two months' time, Nate. So why don't you just put all your eggs into the, what looks like a really wonderful basket? And I was like, I'm going all in. All in. God, if you don't get us, give us this building, I'm going to be really disappointed with you. And you're going to have to do something even better than what I've planned so far. But now on the other side of things, I'm like, God, it was you all along. All those little dots. I mean, many of you know Beck and I are adopted parents. If you heard the things that God did to place Sam into our lives. Seriously, that's another story for another day. It's amazing, but you know what? There have been days where I've been parenting, I've gone like, God, you made the wrong choice. (laughs) When I was in the middle of what felt like the miracle, was amazing, but when I'm looking at this crying child who is taking taking everything from me in a moment, I'm going like, whew. 
Am I working from a place of going, I don't know if I have what it takes? Or am I working from a place of going like, God has given me everything that I could even imagine? He's given me all that I need for my life. And then he goes on, uh, Peter goes on to say, and, and that's through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence, God is calling us to him. That's the most important thing. He's not calling us to produce as much as he's calling us to himself to His glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, I looked into this. There isn't a lot that Peter has written about these great promises, so I can't give you these promises for you to chant every day and suddenly you'll feel like you're part of the divine nature. But I think that we know what those great promises are because we've got this book. And so when you know these great promises, then you are, as Peter is saying, uh, are able to partake in the divine nature. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that you become a God? No, it doesn't mean that you become a God because that's not what the Bible teaches. But what I believe that Peter is saying is that we have all been created in the image and likeness of God. That means that His promises are bringing us back to the original design, the original likeness of what God has created us with. In other words, this is where life truly is. God has created us in His likeness, in the fullness of life, in the fullness of everything. The goodness and His grace has designed us in this way, and through His promises, He's guiding us on this journey of becoming the people that He has designed us to be. And it goes on to saying, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Now, we talked about that before, so we don't have time to, uh, to, to come back to that. So let's go on to the next section, which is about the qualities Peter really wants us to remember. So this starts in verse 5. It says, for this very reason. What's the very reason? That God has given us everything that we need. Because God has given us everything that we need, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, how many of you looked at that list of things and went, wow, that's such a great list of qualities? How many of you have put any single one of those qualities onto your New Year's resolution list ever? But Peter said, because I am going to die, I'm going to remind you about this and I'm going to write it down into a letter so that you can access this again and again and again. What does he want us to remember? Faith, virtue, godliness, self-control, steadfastness, mutual affection, and love. They don't make my top 10 list of things that I want to be doing. 
They don't, but for Peter, this is the bee's knees. This is what your life should be all about. And he explains it this way, that if these qualities are yours in an increasing manner, then you will know that God is at work in your life. You want to know whether God is with you? You will be growing your faith, your virtue, your steadfastness, your knowledge, your self-control. That's what happens. Sometimes we, because of our Western mindset, our production mindset, we think about the people that we need to reach. We think about the things that we need to do. We think about the promotions that we need to get. We think about the house that we need to pay off. We think about all of those external things when God is saying, look at your heart. Who you are becoming is a much better gauge of who you are than the things that you produce. And come on, man, Peter says that if you have these in growing measure, not just have these, but in growing measure, you will never fall. How many of you want a 2024 where you know that you just can't fall? How many of you want to be in a place where you go like, wherever I walk, it doesn't matter. Whatever happens to me, I'm strong. It doesn't matter what comes my way. My heart is secure. You want to have that kind of life? Grow in these qualities. Put them into your New Year resolution list. Which to me is just weird. I mean, I'm saying all this stuff and it might sound good in the moment, but you're going to go home and you're going to look at that list and you're going to go like, really? I need to do these things? I mean, God it says that you've given me everything that I need, so why do I still need to work on these things? Why does Peter even say, make every effort? It feels a little bit legalistic. And I want to share to, uh, with you a quote from theologian N.T. Wright, and he says, The big picture is what God wants for His people. All too often people think that religion or even Christian faith is about what God wants from us. Good behavior, renunciation of things we like, a gritted teeth, morality, or forcing ourselves to behave unnaturally. This is a total caricature. What is he saying? He's saying that if you forget the first few verses that we look at, where it says that God has given us everything that we need, if you look at the next few verses and say you need to grow in these things, you're going to get it wrong. You're going to think that Christianity is about what God wants from you rather than what God wants for you. What is the difference? If God has designed you in a certain way and knows that this is the way that you are going to experience life and life to the full, it would be good of Him, gracious of Him, to keep pulling us back to those qualities. I want to tell you a story, and it's, 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 it's a tough story. Through Bex and my adoption journey, uh, we met a number of people going through the same process, and we made friends with a couple of them. They ended up being placed with a boy uh, from another country. And so they went over overseas and, and, and met him and then brought him back to Perth uh, after a short amount of time. These, this couple, they, they're amazing. Uh, they're not believers, they're not Christians, but they have a, a heart for children. And so they've done so much. Going for this inter-country adoption process would have costed them probably 40,000 US dollars at least, at the minimum. They, they prepared their house. They went through all the same processes that Beck and I did, uh, going for psych evaluations, paying for all of these different things and, and preparing themselves to have this boy. 
they did what they needed to in order to have a family ready for this boy. Now, when the boy comes home with them, he develops something that psychologists would call food insecurity. What food insecurity is, is this, that because this boy doesn't trust his caregivers, he doesn't know where his next meal is going to come from. And so whenever he sees food, he eats food. So they were at the dining table, and you know, he, I think at that point he was maybe two and a half, three years old, and so of course they give him a smaller plate for dinner. But when he sees his smaller plate of dinner and his parents' bigger plate of dinner, he scoffs down his and then reaches over and grabs as much as he can from their plates. So what did they have to do? They all had the same, uh, same portion until he goes to bed and then they had a second dinner. I secretly think that they're hobbits, but <laughs> that's what they had to do. But it went on for a while and it wasn't changing. This food insecurity wasn't going anywhere. And so uh, the, the advice that they were given was to put this boy's favorite food all over the place so that he would be able to visually see that he has the food that he needs wherever he's going. Yeah. It works for some people. It didn't work for this little boy. He played scavenger hunt for a day, found all the food around the house and scoffed a lot. He ate so much that he got sick and he vomited it out. And then he proceeded to eat his vomit because he did not know inside of him where his next meal is coming from. Church, I put to you that sometimes we are like that little boy in the presence of our gracious God. The Bible tells us that God has adopted us into his family and has given us everything. We are co-heirs with Christ. Come on, we have everything we need. But sometimes we go around scavenging for things. Sometimes they look like good things. Money, prestige, nice car, nice house, comfortable things. We can say, oh, we want to use those things for good purposes. Yes. But we have it at the wrong times, at the wrong amounts. Because we don't trust God. So when God is saying that you need to grow in these qualities, it's not because He's punishing you, but He's showing you a better way to live. That boy needs to learn self-control. That boy needs to learn steadfastness. And he needs to recognize it in his parents. Because that, uh, that, you know, I feel like sometimes our culture would go, oh, poor traumatized boy, you know, that's fine, that's what you need to do. Yes, for the first few days, but not for the rest of your life. Yes, the family is doing whatever they can to, to give him the security and to give him the food that he needs. And I, I thank God that this boy has, has grown past those insecurities. We don't say, oh, you're so insecure, so you stay like that. It says, yes, I see your insecurity. I see your fears. I acknowledge those fears. God does that with us. He sees us. He let, doesn't even let a single hair drop off from our heads without him knowing. He's been counting a lot of them because a lot of them have been falling out of my head. And, and God knows and God sees that and he continues to give. But I need to grow because I'm stuffing myself silly sometimes with the things that make me sick. 
These qualities will stop you from stuffing yourself silly and making yourself sick. It helps us to become who God has intended us to always be. And at the same time, N.T. Wright also says that all these take thought, all these take effort. They don't happen by accident. You have to want to do them. You have to choose to do them. But when you do and pray for God's grace, promises, and power to help, you will be coming to know Jesus the Messiah. And in that knowledge, you won't just be a Christian for your own sake, as it were. You will become fruitful in God's service. See, we get it mixed up and turn around. We think that we need to do service for God in order that God will uh, grace us and come to us. No, no, no. It's us becoming like, uh, like who we are meant to be. We are meeting Jesus, the Messiah, and through that, there is a fruitfulness that naturally happens. There is another quote that I want to read to you from a, a, a man named Henry Nowen, and he says, We have been called to be fruitful, not successful, not productive, not accomplished. Success comes from strength, stress, and human effort. Fruitfulness comes from vulnerability and admission of our own weaknesses. How beautiful is that statement? We're not meant to be striving to become. We're meant to be surrendering to become. We are meant to be laying down our pride. Because when you look at the list of, uh, of, uh, of qualities that Peter talks about, they aren't flashy. They aren't like wonderful and all of that, but they are core to becoming who God has called us to be. And so this morning, as we start this series, preparing for 2024, I present to you things that will help you know who you are becoming rather than what you are producing. So think about them. I just want to point out a few things to help you process it. Like seriously, take a picture of this or write them down somewhere and over the next few weeks before you hit 2024, think about how you're going to grow in these qualities. The first is faith. And I want to just quickly talk about faith. Faith in the Jewish mindset isn't about like some emotional or even intellectual belief. Faith is about covenant. That's what the Jewish people have always thought when they thought about faith. It is that I'm having a covenant with God, a full-on marriage commitment, in other words. When we think about our faith and growing in our faith, we are growing in our marriage vows to God and growing in our understanding of God's marriage vows to us. I'm using the word marriage and it might freak you out, but that's how the Bible describes the relationship we have with God. It's a covenant. And so, you know, a few years ago, Beck and I have been married for 10 years now. But a few years ago, Beck and I realized that we don't even remember our marriage vows. Because we don't recite them. We don't talk about them. It's like, oh, remember, this is what I vowed to you today. But we don't do that. We just go on with life. And so she printed it out and put it into a nice little box that is displayed in some part of our house that I haven't seen for a while. <laughs> but do you know that you need to be reminded of the vows that you've made and that have been given to you? Grow in it. How do you grow in that? Maybe read this. That's a good starting point. Come here. You'll be hearing a lot about the promises that you are meant to be making to God and that God has already made to you. 
Go into a small group. Think about that. The next is virtue, which is a word that we don't use anymore. It probably means excellent character. How's your character going? Do you like the person that you are in business? Do you like the person you are in relationships? Do people think that when they are interacting with you that you're a person of integrity? Or do they go, oh, you're shifty? You know, I had a friend who once said that Nate is not nice. He's strategically nice. He's only nice to you if he needs something from you. That is not a compliment. He possibly meant it to be. I don't know how. But it's not a compliment. I've thought about that. Do I only do nice things to people that I get something from? That's not virtue. I had to work on that. The next thing is knowledge. Knowledge, not just any kind of knowledge, but we are meant to grow. There's something in our culture that says that Christianity is non-intellectual. That is absolute fallacy. The Bible uses so much of thinking and thought and knowledge. We are meant to be growing in our knowledge. If you don't understand something, search it out. If you don't know what it means, go learn it. Grow in your knowledge. Read some books. Stop watching Netflix. It's all good stuff. The next is steadfastness. How are you going in your faithfulness to other people, to other relationships, to the church? Would you consider yourself steadfast? Would you consider yourself present? Godliness, well, I th these qualities are meant to be building on each other. I think that when we are doing all of those things, we are becoming more godly because we are thinking about the things that matter to God. But I love that the last two qualities are actually things for us to do. And I find it interesting that it comes in a two-part kind of a thing, mutual affection or brotherly love or brotherly affection and love. Why do you think that is? This is my thought. I haven't looked deeply into it. I might do something this week, put up a blog post about these qualities if I get the time. But I think it's because it's easy to love the people that you know, but you still have to do it. When was the last time you invited someone else from this church, brothers and sisters in Christ, over for a meal? When was the last time you hung out with someone outside uh, from this pool of people in this church? Um, because you can. Do you even like the people in this room? Can I just say something? I don't mean this to be condemning. I don't know you if I meet you once a month. I see my psychologist as much as I see you. My psychologist is not my friend, someone I pay to listen to me. And you're treating me like your psych. You come in here, give your tithe, and now Nate needs to listen to me. No, I'm not gonna do that. Go see your psych, go pay your psych, come here and be part of the family. Understand the responsibilities and the rights of being part of the family. Mutual affection. Do you like? It uses the word affection, people. Do you like each other? Do you like hanging out with each other? Do you actually talk about your interests and share those interests with one another? Do you know what that other person on the other side of the aisle know, uh, likes? Do you know what footy team I go for? Do I know what footy team you go for? 
Some of you offer the purple kind and you're closer to Barney than you are to the premiership. <laughs> Don't know where that came from. Mutual affection and competition. I think that's all okay. By the way, we're going to do a tipping competition next year. It's going to be fun. But do we have fun? Do you hang out for lunch? Or do you always have something to do? It's like I've done my religious duty. You might have done your religious duty, but you haven't done your family duty. And what even is a religious duty? Anyway, soapbox off, but grow in brotherly affection or mutual affection with the people that are on the same journey as you. That's why God uses the word brotherly or mutual affection is the people that are on this faith journey with you. And if you do well in that, I think it helps you to love others better. Sometimes we try to skip that and we try to love well when we don't even like other people. Doesn't work. We grow in our mutual affection which helps us grow in our love for one another. So look at that list. Those eight things. Here's my recommendation. Maybe take the three or five that you look at and you go, I struggle with those things and map out how you are going to grow in them. Do something about it. N.T. Wright says that these are not going to just grow by osmosis. They grow by deliberate effort. And I love that I actually brought this passage up to our night crew, volunteers that do stuff for our church, and we had Steve over on Monday night to do that. And I love that Steve pointed this out when we were talking about this. He looked at those qualities and said, that's why we need the church, isn't it? That's why we need community. You don't easily grow in these kinds of qualities. It's easy to get a paycheck from your job and to go for a performance review at your job and know that you're doing okay. But how are you doing as a Christian? How are you doing as a believer who has received everything that you need from our Creator God? By being in the community and saying to someone else, how's my steadfastness going? How's my self-control going? How's my virtue going? Tell me how my character is. It is through a community of people that like you and are doing life with you that are able to say, that's not very virtuous. Love you, but that's something you're going to have to work on. That's not very steadfast. We don't make these rules by ourselves, or we don't make the standard of these qualities by ourselves. We make it in a community. What a virtue doesn't work when you're by yourself. Steadfast doesn't work as an individual. Steadfastness requires me to be steadfast to someone else. Virtue requires me to be virtuous to someone else. Mutual affection requires me to be affectionate to someone else. Our Christian faith doesn't work in isolation. So maybe one of the things that you need to grow is to get yourself into community and to have someone on your journey. Today we are running for the second time this year our discipleship drive. And our church, we believe in relational discipleship. What does that mean? It means that we believe in one-on-one -on -one, uh, journeying with someone, meeting up with them once a month and working through discipleship things in your life. Let these be the qualities that you bring up with a disciple that says, hey, this year I really want to work on this. God's really put this on my heart. Because when we are growing in these qualities, we cannot fall. Can you imagine what our church would be like if all of us are on this journey increasing in these eight qualities? 
The sky's the limit. Because I think God's going to be able to trust us, and He's going to pour out more. And that's what I believe that we need to be doing in 2024, not sitting back, not trying to consolidate. We need to take territory. We need to expand the kingdom of God because that's what God has put on our hearts. And I invite you onto that journey, both personally and corporately as a church. If we can get the band up this morning. If you do want to uh, uh, start your relational discipleship journey, we've got a, a booth over on the, on the back, and, and my dad, Peter, he's going to be uh, there, and you can talk to him about relational discipleship. Get on that journey. But other than that, think about those qualities and start to write them out. Think about how God wants you to grow in them, how you can increase in those qualities. It's sad that we can be in the house of God and yet still think that we are starving. And I want to end this morning just on that note. It's sad that we can be in the house of the Lord. I'm not talking about this church, but spiritually speaking, God has adopted us into His family. We can be adopted and yet think, I don't know where my next meal is coming from. If that is you this morning, I want to pray for you. Because God has given His great and many promises to you, inviting you to participate in the divine nature. He's given you everything that you need for your life and for godliness. All of those virtues, all of those, sorry, all those qualities will grow the more we realize how much God does love us, how much God does grace us. One of those core passages that I've carried for me as I went on my journey is that Jesus says to us that we are able to enter into His presence with confidence. We can go to the throne of grace. God doesn't reveal Himself as a God of judgment to us. He reveals Himself as a God of grace, a God of abundance, a God that desires to give. And He says, so you can ask. The problem is that sometimes when I'm prideful, I don't like to ask for what I need. Don't do that, church. I've been there. It's stupid to think that I can do this by myself. So I will enter into God's presence daily, multiple times a day. I go to God in my mind, to His throne of grace, and I say, God, I need you. I'm still struggling with things. My self-control's not where it's supposed to be. My virtue's not where it's supposed to be. Help me, Lord. I want to be the person that you've called me to be. Why don't we stand, church? We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.